Hi, everyone, and welcome to Season 2 of the God and My Girlfriends podcast. I'm your host, Marsha Ramirez, and I have some amazing special guests this season, and we're going to dive into some topics that will help us all learn how to nurture our spiritual lives, nurture our friendships, and nurture ourselves. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, friends. It's Monday, October 4th. I am recording this from my dressing room in Ridgefield, Connecticut, where um, we're out here on tour this fall, and the weather is so incredibly perfect, I can't even stand it. We've been having an amazing tour, and I have been falling in love with the Northeast. We've been in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and now we're in Connecticut, and I was telling some friends, I was like, I think I need to move here, but they were like, yeah, spend a winter up here first and then make your decision about that. So fair enough, fair enough. But it's been beautiful and uh, I have just been having a blast. I've been having a blast meeting some people out here and seeing some old friends and um, yeah, it's been great. So today's podcast, uh, it comes with a bit of a warning up front. The topic today is on spiritual trauma and abuse. It's heavy, but uh, but it's a very important and, and current topic to discuss. It's pretty amazing to me how many people are coming forth now to reveal abuse by former trusted spiritual leaders and advisors and or trauma from really bad theology that helped shape and form their spiritual lives at early ages and didn't serve them well in the long run. You're going to tell by my responses in this interview that I honestly was um, left without verbiage to respond sometimes, so I just stumbled around a lot. It's just a difficult topic to discuss for sure, but uh, I am really grateful for our guest today, and I'll introduce her in a minute. But before I get there, like many of you, I have been listening to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. That's a very popular podcast right now. And um, it, it, for those of you that don't know about it, it sort of chronicles the, the rise and fall of a church in Seattle named Mars Hill that was led by a pastor named Mark Driscoll. And honestly, there were times as I was listening to that that I felt... I felt my heart rate start to rise and my hands begin to shake and I could feel my body starting to relive some past spiritual trauma and I had to turn it off for a bit because I just wasn't really sure it was doing me good to hear it. It sort of felt like I was being re-traumatized a bit, but after speaking with my therapist about it, I was able to listen again and I'm actually finding some healing in the exposure that's coming through this, that there is indeed uh, exposure to the fact that some religious environments are genuinely not safe. I I used to be under the impression that any church or any religious leader was a, a safe place to be. I mean, come on, they're houses of God, leaders who are so good and pure that they have chosen to spend their lives preaching the good news of the gospel. So all these people must be good, honest, loving, moral, decent. You know, I've, I've learned this is just not the case. It's sad, but true. 
Um, in this interview, we also are going to talk about other topics related to spiritual trauma, including deconstruction, uh, decolonization of faith, and purity culture. Our conversation today is aimed at adults, and so if you're listening to this around children, I'd really recommend putting on some earpods or waiting until another time to listen, because this conversation is definitely not for small ears. But anyway, I'm really grateful to my guest for being willing to come on and discuss this very personal and hard topic. Um, it's, it's a tough one. So... Uh, I'll just let the interview speak for itself, but before we get there, I want to introduce you to my guest. My guest today is my friend Jessica Hine. Jessica is a native Nashvilleian. Uh, we call those unicorns around here, but um, she has lived here her whole life, and she has been working for over 10 years as a licensed trauma therapist in Nashville, Tennessee, specializing in the intersection of religious trauma and family of origin trauma. And she'll talk a little bit about that. It's, it's fascinating. She holds a master's in clinical psychology from Wheaton College. And she enjoys meditation, reading, adventure, and exploring the outdoors with her dog, Cam. Jessica and I are in a couple of small groups together at our church. And I have really enjoyed getting to know her. I am just amazed at the work she is doing to help those that are working through this very real trauma, and I think you're going to learn so much from her today. So, y'all get ready to meet the wonderful Jessica Hine. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on, Marsha. I'm so honored. Well, I, I am really super grateful because I know that you, know, you were saying, I'm, I don't know about doing something like this. And then you thought about it and you so graciously said, you know, I want to use my voice to help. And what we're going to talk about today is such an important topic. You have such expertise in this. So um, your voice is really valuable. And I just want to say really, truly, I'm so grateful you're here. Oh, well, thank you so much. I really look forward to getting into it. Yeah. And, but before we get into all that, this is a heavy topic. Before we get into all that, I do want to just talk a little bit about you for a minute. You're a native Nashville. Were you born here? I was, I was born right in Davidson County in Nashville. Oh my gosh. You know, in the music business, we call native Nashvilleians unicorns. <laughs> <laughs> because yep, no, we are. you're like, what? Wait, we can't even comprehend. You were born here because no one's from Nashville, but you're a Nashvilleian. That's awesome. I am. Did you, what was like your spiritual background? Like, did you grow up in the church as a child? Yes. So I was born into a family on both sides, coming from three generations of being church of Christ. And that's a pretty predominant denomination here in Nashville. Yeah. And um, so I was attending church on Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings and Wednesdays from the beginning of my life all the way through. Um, so yeah, I grew up firmly rooted within conservative evangelicalism. Wow. I had a, a short stint in the church of Christ in my first marriage. My first husband's family was church of Christ. So I grew up Baptist, but, uh, went to church of Christ for several years back in the, um, mid eighties, mid to late eighties. What I learned about church of Christ is that they aren't necessarily a denomination, like from church to church to church, they can be 
very different. Ours, of course, were like non-music. You couldn't play any musical instrument. Were your churches that way too? Yes. So um, the churches of Christ that were a part of kind of the community of churches of Christ that I was a part of um, were all instrumental. I mean, non-instrumental. So absolutely acapella the hundred percent of the time. So I grew up, you know, never hearing music played in church. And, you know, that is such a, you know, of course I didn't think that was unique at all. I thought this was completely what everyone else did. I didn't know anything different at all. Right. And so it's been uh, a discovery for me (laughs) to recognize the very unique things that come with coming from a church of Christ heritage. Yeah. Yeah. It was such a shock because like I said, I grew up Southern Baptist and I grew up playing the piano in church. And of course there was an organ there and, um, you know, we had musical instruments from the time we were little, we were, you know, they put little tambourines in our hands or something, you know, and you, 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 uh, made a joyful noise with your harp, you know, whatever you could. And when I got in church of Christ, I was like, wait, what, what, <laughs> wait, wait, instrumental they're, they're bad. You can't, you can't play them in church. And uh, I'll never forget the first wedding I attended where the, the audience sang, as she walked down the aisle, rather than, you know, hearing here comes the bride on the organ. I was just amazed. Um, It was a head spinning time for me, I'll have to say. Um, So you grew up in Church of Christ. Uh, What about as an adult? Did you Mm -hmm. clearly you made some different decisions spiritually as you got older? Yes. So for me, there was always this deeply curious part of myself that I cultivated alone. It was a very individual process, but I sort of collected books. I couldn't really explore topics um, very well verbally, but books were a huge resource for me. And so starting pretty young, I started reading and reading. And if somebody said, oh, you shouldn't read that, then of course that was the book that I chose to pick up. (laughs) Um, And so in doing so, I was getting access to stuff that, you know, essentially was very different than the worldview that I was being handed um, within the Church of Christ. And um, so I went to my parents at 16 and I said, hey, I really, really would appreciate if when I turn 16, you will let me go to any church that I want. And this was a big ask because nobody in my family nor my extended family had ever left the church of Christ. So this was like a really big ask. And they granted me that um, and said, you can go, we want your faith to be your own. And so you can go anywhere that you want to, as long as you go. And so at 16, I was so excited because I was like, I get to like actually experience these things that I've never experienced before. I went to a Christian school that was also Church of Christ. And so literally my entire world was within this denomination. And I had zero experience with any mainline Protestantism or Catholicism or anything. I had literally no experience, but read all about it. So I was pumped. Um, And so I sort of did little stints in a variety of different areas. I started you know, exploring PCA and learned a lot about reform theology and understanding kind of where that came from. And then I kind of jumped over to charismaticism for a little while and a stint in Mennonite 
um, heritage, and then a bit of a stint in Catholicism. I jumped around from 16 to 25. You pretty much named the denomination Episcopal, um, you name it. And I was like, who is doing this right? Right? Like who is getting this Right. Because I had this still, I still had the framework of a church of Christ person, which was looking for the right arrangement of furniture for the right theology. Mm. Um, and so I was just searching, 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 searching. Wow. That is, I'm just blown away. Cause I'm thinking it when I was 16, I, I don't know, figuring out my theology was <laughs> not in the top 10. <laughs> that is impressive girl. I mean, that you, felt the need to get that right at such a young age. So you started your little journey Mm -hmm. and um, I'm guessing that your experiences in all these different churches and seeing all the different um, ways of worship and the different theologies led you somehow into your current work, Mm -hmm. which, uh, which is based a lot on, like you said, on spiritual trauma from the past. It's a big topic right now. Everyone's listening to the Mars Hill podcast, and there's a lot of people talking about uh, spiritual abuse, not just trauma, but abuse. Um, We're going to dive into this. I do have some questions for you, but before we get into it, is there anything you'd like to say before we dive into this topic? Yeah, I would love to just invite every listener to really pay attention to their body and to honor themselves in this process. And so as we're talking, if we bring up issues that you notice that on a scale of one to 10, if 10 is like the most anxious or activated you've ever been, if you get above a five, that's just re-traumatizing to yourself. And actually it probably means you should hit pause and maybe come back to this later or seek support for yourself that um, I want to talk about these topics in a way that are effective for people and not re-traumatizing because a lot of times we don't even realize the trauma we've experienced until we're right in the middle of it. And our body will tell us Mm -hmm. that we are there. And so I really invite everybody to really pay attention to that. And great if if it doesn't happen to you, that's awesome. But if it does, just honor yourself and give yourself space and seek support for yourself. I love that. I love that because I think there probably is a combination of people that are interested in this topic because they do have past spiritual trauma. But then there also, I think, will be some listeners here that don't necessarily feel like they do, but they're hearing other people talking about it. And so they want to learn more. They want to understand what is happening to their friends, what, what reactions are going on. And so, um, so yeah, I think there's two kinds of listeners here today and, um, we're just glad all of you are here. So, um, diving in, let's just talk about trauma in general. Like what, what is trauma and how does it, how does it affect us? Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about trauma. So first I'm going to talk about what it's not. Okay. (laughs) Um, which sounds, uh, not intuitive, but, um, it is not just sexual, emotional, or physical abuse or a accident that has happened to you or only happened to Vietnam veterans or, um, only happening in war, et cetera. It's actually much more nuanced than this. And neurobiology over the last 10 years has really shifted our understanding as therapists of what trauma actually is. And the best definitions that I can kind of use for people is 
everybody has resources of how they deal with life every day. They have coping skills that they use to get through things, to process through emotions, to experience things. But when you have an event that happens where your body becomes overwhelmed and whatever skills you have are not enough, a lot of times we go, we shift into a um, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response. And these are the four responses to trauma. Um, It's whenever our body becomes overwhelmed and we're alone. And this can be, it could be something that would be innocuous for another person, but you experiencing it, your body, it feels overwhelming. The other thing that we, when we talk about trauma, it lives in our bodies. And what I mean by that is an activation happens in our bodies. And this response happens where we either fight, flight, freeze, or faint fawn and fawning is where you just give in and you basically um, in some ways it's sort of like playing dead Um, but it's where you just give in to the scenario or whatever is going on and you don't fight back and so these responses happen which actually stops the normal responses in our bodies. Because a lot of times in the modern world, we can't run from the thing, you know, like if it's an emotional thing, we can't run away from it. Um, That isn't effective. So Mm -hmm. we've evolved in such a way that some of our responses actually get stuck in our bodies. And that's where the trauma starts. So it can be, something as innocuous as, Hey, I got trapped in a bathroom when I was three and I was all alone and I was terrified and I relived this experience. And as a therapist, we kind of categorize trauma in two specific ways. The first way is just PTSD. And that's meaning essentially you have some re-experiencing of the traumatic event, but you want to avoid thinking about it. So you spend time trying to avoid thinking about it, but it starts to come up for you. And that is one that's just classic PTSD. But then there's another thing called complex PTSD. And this is when a series of traumas gets layered on top of each other. And it happens over and over again. And one then has more symptoms, including things like um, difficulty maintaining relationships and negative self-image, things like this that accompany these Mm. re-experiencing symptoms. And so it's um, one of those things that I think about it this way, which is actually most people experience something that we would categorize as trauma and it lives in their bodies. I have yet to meet someone who hasn't. Hasn't had. Can you have, it's, it's so funny because I'm just thinking, can you have a trauma at a young age that you don't even remember and yet it's coming out? Because I, I had to have an MRI the other day and I was absolutely, like I could not rationalize in my mind how to go through this without completely freaking out. And I kept thinking, what is wrong with me? You know, I'm telling myself, no one's ever died in an MRI. You've never heard anyone go, I lost a friend in an MRI. You know, it's like, it's safe. You're, you're, no one can hurt you. You know, you can, but I, you know, was having an, a, a physical, emotional reaction. My heart was racing. My hands were shaking. I was, I was crying. I made them pull me out the first time. It took me a long time before I could actually get through it. And I was telling my stepdaughter about it. And she looked at me, she goes, I wonder what happened to you. 
Like, did something happen to you when you were little? And I'm like, I don't remember it, but maybe something did. I mean, cause clearly that's a tra- trauma of some kind. Yes. I feel like people often don't have a memory, but they have a felt sense is what I call it. But mm. it's essentially like when I start experiencing something, it feels old. Oh. It does not feel just present. Right. It feels old. Now I don't have memories connected to this and there's lots of research around actually our memories are sometimes protected, um, that, that our bodies are so smart that they will protect us from certain traumas to not feel them and to not remember to purposefully keep them hidden from ourselves so that we can still function. Because if we were to remember and feel the intensity with which we felt at that time, it would overwhelm us. Wow. That's, that's incredible. So yeah, I'm sure everyone is walking around with some sort of trauma, specifically going to like religious trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was doing some research the other day and I, I saw a, a description of, of spiritual abuse. I'm going to read it and we'll see if you think it's anywhere accurate. It says, um, spiritual abuse is an attempt by a person or group or organization to use all that encompasses another person's spiritual life, their beliefs, their faith, their experiences, their hopes to coerce or manipulate that person into serving the abuser's agenda. Does that sound, um, sound accurate to you? Yes. And I hear those words and it sounds like it's derived from our understanding of domestic violence, which mm-hmm. is a power and control situation. Right. Um, and the tactics that are used a lot of times in those relationships by the abuser to manipulate the victim into not trusting themselves and gaslighting them in order for the abuser's demands to be met, whatever they are. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where that definition really comes from. And I definitely think that that is a form of abuse for sure. In terms of spiritual abuse, I kind of look at it a little more broadly in this sense. For me, there are several words like within the research anyway, that of how they talk about this. And I'll Mm -hmm. use all the words so that people, when they're Googling, they can Mm -hmm. find all of the resources. So for some people, it's spiritual abuse. For some people, it's religious trauma. And all of these are synonymous. Right. Um, The other word is adverse religious experience. Mm. Um, And that's if you're looking, if you want to look up the data on this, look up adverse religious experience, because that's what researchers use. Okay. Um, But essentially the way I look look about, look at it is this, if there is anyone that says to you, something about you is bad, Mm. anyone in any scenario, whether it's spiritual, whether this is in a family system, if you somehow are getting the message that you are bad and that I know what's good, whoever they are, that is a form of manipulation and control that will destabilize any human being and they will do whatever they can to not be bad. Wow. And unfortunately that is some of the messaging. And I want to recognize there are forms of spirituality that do not teach this. And that's wonderful. And to me, a healthy version of spirituality is beautiful, 
but there are some versions of different religions, and this is found in many, many religions that teach that there is something wrong with you and we have the cure and you need us in order to be good. Mm. People are easily manipulated when they are scared that way. Right. Um, Right. And so that's kind of like how I try to talk about it on the ground level rather than sort of like an all encompassing power and control. Well, and I think you've said something uh, in the past about religious trauma and family trauma interact. How does that connect? Yes. You know, what I've noticed as I've gotten in this work, I've been doing this now for 13 years. And what I notice is you cannot separate because they're so intertwined. Um, family of origin, that just means your immediate family, family of origin trauma from religious trauma. And what I mean by that is so many times they interact in such a unique fashion. And what I mean by that is, let's say that the father has a rage problem and he comes home and he terrorizes the family with his anger in order to get things done, right? He instills fear in his children, immense fear. Well, the child on a religious level is getting the message, oh, that man was ordained by God. It's not just my dad, but the deity up in the sky is allowing this to happen. So it must be good. Mm. And it's a next level trauma because it's not just my dad's authority. It's God's authority. And that's the ultimate authority, right? Like there is nothing more powerful in our understanding and humanity. And so for a child, this is double layer trauma Mm. and you can't tear them apart. They're inter they're interconnected. And so when I do treatment, I really look at that intersection because I find that if you treat one, you're missing out on the other one. Yeah. I mean, I've seen that in some of my, um, religious background, especially when there's that, um, definitive, the father or husband is head of household. You are to be submissive. The wife and kids are submissive. You do whatever he says, but then that person is abusive or, or telling you to do things that aren't good. Like that's what I've seen. And that, that causes a real trauma too, for the family, because if they do what they know in their gut is right, like then they feel like you said, then they're also like going against the way God ordained the family to be. And that's a, that's a terrifying place as a child, especially, or as a, or as a wife, like I have no voice. I can't go against this. Absolutely. And I think you mentioned something so important, which is when a system tells you that whatever bodily signals you are getting, whatever emotions you have, whatever needs you have, you should not have. Mm-hmm. Whenever anyone does that and tries to disconnect you from your body systematically like that, it is traumatizing Mm -hmm. because the truth of the matter is our bodies send us signals that are just information. Emotions are just information, right? They're just cues trying to tell me something, you know, anger shows up because it's trying to tell me to be protective. Something has crossed a boundary here. This is Mm -hmm. not okay. Mm -hmm. You know, sadness shows up to talk about grief. This hurts. This is painful. It's just information. And when somebody tries to tell you, for instance, some people use like the heart is deceitful above all things for you to distrust 
those signals your body is sending you that are natural responses to given scenarios. That is a form of gaslighting and a form of power and control because that's how they get you to do what you're talking about, which is like to go against your gut, right? Anytime that you go against that innate sense that you have, it's almost, we call it interoception, but all it means is our minds are amazing. Um, they actually, before they cognitively know something, they have a felt sense of something. And when people talk about, oh, I had this gut reaction to him or her or this scenario, that's right. what they're talking about. It's interoception. It's our ability to sensately feel something before we cognitively know it. Mm. Um, mm. And when somebody gets you to distrust that and tells you that it's bad, all things go haywire from a mental health standpoint. Wow. That. Yes. I, you know, i oh gosh, so many things are running through my head. One thing is our, our preacher, uh, recently did a little series called trusting, learning to trust your inner knowing because, mm. um, our, the church that I attend, there's a lot of people going through deconstruction right now. And a lot of people were taught as they were growing up in certain religious backgrounds and certain theologies that you cannot trust your own gut. You cannot trust your feelings. You can only trust the leaders of that church. And so if your feelings are going against what they're telling you, your feelings are bad. Your feelings are even evil. They're fleshly. They're wrong, you know? And, and yet I remember at some point, you know, as a young adult going, but as a Christian, I'm supposed to have the Holy spirit inside me. And if the Holy Spirit is inside me, maybe those feelings and those thoughts are from him. Like, how do you, you know, and uh, that's when I started going, wait a minute, this is just, I don't think all my thoughts are bad and evil and fleshly. And, and I shouldn't always ignore what my, my gut is trying to tell me. And um, that's when I started realizing, you know, the, uh, for lack of a better word, manipulation that was going on in some of the churches that I had attended, not all of them, you know, like you said, there, we are not trying to paint all churches as being bad. There are not all bad experiences, but what hit me is that not all churches are safe either. I mean, when I was young, not all religious environments are safe. I, I thought, oh, you, you know, church people are all good. Like that blanket, like every pastor is good. Every priest is good. Every church you walk into is a safe place. And that's false. I mean, that's just not the truth anymore. Um, and a lot of people are recovering from those unsafe places. Absolutely. Hi, friends. We're taking one more quick break just to remind you that this podcast is sponsored by God and My Girlfriend's Ministries. We are a registered 501c3 nonprofit that supports women in all walks of life. Women helping women become everything that God created them to be. That's our mission. We have online book clubs, live events, weekend workshops and retreats, a single mama's ministry, and also this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, get involved in any way with any of our programs, or maybe even help support us financially by donating, you can do all of that on our website, which is GodAndMyGirlfriendsOnline.com. You can also find us on any of our socials. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and even Twitter. So reach out when you can, 
and let us know how we can serve you or maybe someone that you know. And now, back to the conversation. So what are, what are some things that people can do to start overcoming some of these trauma responses that are related to religion specifically? Yeah, you know, that is such a huge question. And I want to kind of break it down in a variety of scenarios because everybody is a little different at where they are. Sure. Um, But just like I said at the beginning of this podcast, honor your body. I think part of recovering the truth about who you are is honoring yourself, which means you've got to start really paying attention to what goes on in your body. The more uh, we've uncovered things neurobiologically, the more we've become born body centric. And all I mean by that is your body is trying to tell you something at any given moment. It might be telling you you're hungry. It might be telling you um, that you're frustrated at your partner. You know, it's telling, it's sending you signals all the time. If you are aware of it. Now we have this, these beautiful things that happen (laughs) that keep us from noticing that all the time, because that would be exhausting. We can't do it all the time, right? But just spending time with yourself and just noticing mindfully. And what I mean by that non-judgmentally, it's just information, Oh, and being curious about it. Like, oh, that's what's showing up for me now. I wonder what that's about and getting curious about it Mm. um, and holding space for it. Um, I feel like that process, just the awareness piece, which is I am just honoring what is going on for me right now and internally validating. Oh, of course that's there. Of course I feel angry at so-and-so for doing this. And then after you begin this awareness piece, this, this honoring of yourself, you begin to ask the question of what does that mean? And what does it need to feel safe? Basically our bodies are geared towards finding safety for itself, homeostasis. And if we ask the question of everything that shows up for us, whether it's, let's say it's like anxiety, I, you know, I'm really nervous. Like I was nervous coming on this podcast. What did I need? in that moment for that anxiety to feel safe, to feel heard, to feel validated internally. What did it need? Well, I had this sweet friend who encouraged me and was like, you can do this. That felt really good. What else does it need? Well, it needs me to validate it. It needs to say, oh, of course I would be nervous about this. Um, So ask what that thing needs. What does that emotion need from me to feel safe and heard? Oh, good. That's good. Yeah. So I think that's the beginning process of yeah. this. Yeah. Um, and there's one piece of this I think is so important, which is unfortunately in some of these spiritual places, they teach spiritual immaturity. And here's what I mean by that. I'm talking about validating your emotions. There's something called spiritual bypassing, which is where instead of being able to look at the hard of life, the pain of life, the grief of life, the things that we want to turn away from because they're so painful, instead of looking at those things, spiritualizing them. So saying, oh, well, God actually wanted that to happen. Um, People have probably had this said to them in funeral situations where somebody's like, oh, they're better off in heaven. That's spiritual bypassing, right? Because I don't want to look at your pain of your loss. So I'm just going to stick this spirituality on top of it as a way for me to feel better. Um, 
And that is not a healthy way of dealing with your emotions. You're not dealing with them directly. Right. Um, right. And this creates immaturity in people, spiritual immaturity. And unfortunately that is taught sometimes as an acceptable form of being an adult. Mm. And then this is passed on to children, right. Too, they're taught, you know, like, Oh, don't, you know, like don't validate your own emotions. You just need to pray about it. Yeah. Um, and it's not that praying is bad. That's not what I'm saying either, but do you need to do this other process too? Yes. Yes. That makes sense. Spiritual bypassing. I know exactly. I've, I've never heard the term, but I totally know what you're talking about now, like glossing over what's happening and the emotions, whatever the grief, and just trying to make it out. Like it's just a, there's a spiritual reason. And so you shouldn't be upset about it or something, I guess. Right. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking of times when I've talked to someone, you know, about something that's going on and they would just simply say, well, have you been reading, maybe you should just read your Bible more. You need, you know, it's like, instead of acknowledging what was really going on, it was always a lack of a, it was, I was lacking spiritually, mm-hmm. which is uh, crazy, but yeah, I um, switching gears for just a second. Cause just talking about, there's so many new terms spiritual bypassing is one and deconstruction. That's a a term that a lot of people are talking about. We've talked a little bit about it, but what, what is your, um, what would you define spiritual deconstruction as just for our listeners today too? Yeah. I feel like it is a grief process. Mm. That's all I'd say it is. It's a grief process. And the reason I say that is because it is essentially, I thought I was this one person that thought these certain things or acted in this certain way or did these certain things on Sunday or whatever, or had these practices that were meaningful to me at one point. And now I have shifted and changed. And anytime there's a change, it's a grief process every time. Mm. Um, and that can be a good change. It's still a grief process. Wow. Um, I think people sometimes only associate grief with like death and I want people to recognize any change, good or bad, it is a grief process. And so when I think of deconstruction, I want people, you know, they oftentimes will hear Kubler-Ross. She's sort of the, you know, oldest within the grief process. And they talk about stages within the grief process. I don't really love that rubric. I think it's way messier than that. It's not that you move through stages quite like that. Now it's helpful to have some sort of construction around what grief looked like, but everyone's is unique. And so when I talk about deconstruction processes or whatever, everyone's is unique Mm -hmm. to them and their Mm -hmm. specific version of what it is like and where they land. Mm -hmm. Um, And so part of it from, from my standpoint is a lot of people talk about, well, my belief system changed. And that's true. That's absolutely true. But there was an emotional process that went on as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Loss of friends, potentially loss of potential family members or loss of a sense of safety and existential um, knowledge of where am I going when I die? You know, all of these huge questions. There is emotional content going on constantly in addition to the belief change. And so I help people facilitate that emotional process and emotional awareness of this grief. Oh, wow. That, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. That is 
so valuable. I know so many people that need some direction. They're in it. And I don't know, have you read Faith After Doubt by Brian McLaren? Have you read that book yet? I have skimmed it. I have not read the whole thing. Well, that's okay. But it's interesting because he has like four stages of basically deconstruction and he compares them to the four stages of grief, but he talks about how, but you can skip around. You don't just go through them in order. You know, I think it's simplicity, then complexity, then perplexity. And then, um, he wanted to do the final stage simplicity again, but he knew he had to come up with something different. But, and, uh, I think the last one is harmony. I'm drawing a blank right this minute, but I think the same thing with grief. And he talks about that there's in the stages of grief, certainly not a linear process that you just go one, two, three, four, and here you are. I mean, you can go from four back to two, (laughs) two back to three, you're just jumping all around. And um, it is a grieving. I, I think it really is a grieving on so many levels. I just did a book club on, on that. And the, the people in that group were so wonderful and were so open and honest about their process. And there were tears shed. I mean, it, it was a, it, everyone says it, I didn't ask for this. Like I wasn't looking for this. I, I, there's times where I just want to go back to where it was simpler and I felt safe and I felt like I had all the answers, you know, and that's scary when you suddenly go, Oh wait, I don't have any of the answers anymore. Um, so you actually do counsel people through deconstruction. Absolutely. Um, I feel like, well, my, usually people are coming to me where they are in there. They have started the process of deconstruction, but they also recognize that they're experiencing some trauma symptoms, like what we talked about earlier. And you help Um, them work through that. Right. And I know that not everybody experiences that during deconstruction. So, um, but for the people that do, I think there should be someone who understands all the nuance of that, because mm-hmm. a lot of times you might go to a therapist, but they might not understand how that particular theology impacted you when you start explaining it, because it's a subculture, right? Like this is right. a very niche area. Um, not all Americans go through this, you know? Um, and so, uh, most of my clients come to me because they recognize on some level, they experience family of origin trauma, and they also are experiencing deconstruction or right. one or the other. Right. And a lot of times when you go through deconstruction, that's when you really kick up some family trauma because Mm. your family's probably, a lot of our families are rooted in a certain theology. And if you question that, like, that's why I'm so blown away that your parents at 16 said, we want you to have your own faith. I mean, how generous of them, really, truly, uh, that's fantastic. Um, we were talking about this, uh, everyone that I know, <laughs> except you, because you're smart, probably not listening to Mars Hill, the Mars Hill thing. It's just, no, I know a few people that aren't listening to it. I think I was telling you, a friend of mine said, I don't need to listen to it. I lived through it. And you were talking mm-hmm. about like, he doesn't need to relive that trauma. Like he knows himself and he knows it would trigger him. So he's not listening. But this past week, um, they took a little break and did an interview with Joshua Harris, who um, wrote a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye, which I I guess essentially kind of started the whole purity culture movement. I was telling you earlier, I kind of missed that. I think that was a 
a time in my life where I was sort of out of the church for several reasons. Um, but, uh, as everyone's talking about this purity culture, it's really got me thinking, um, what are your, some thoughts, uh, about the effects of all of that? Absolutely. And I will speak from a place of, uh, vulnerability, um, for me, that was, it was exactly the timing of my puberty is when purity culture hit at its hardest. And so here I was as a 13 year old and I remember the messages I was given. I mean, I read that book. I remember what the response of my community that I was a part of that church of Christ that I went to as well as the broader churches of Christ that I was interacting with in the school. Um, And for me, there was an enormous amount of pressure as a woman that I, um, I developed early. So I had an enormous pressure to wear baggy clothing to in no way embody anything sexual that might cause my brother to stumble, Mm. um, that I was somehow responsible for men's sexuality, Mm. right. Which I had actually no control over. I had no control over their actual thoughts or any of that. And none of that should have ever been placed on me. But the way that I internalized a lot of these messages were things like, okay, um, it is a more pure and godly thing to never touch anyone I'm dating. Touch is a natural response to intimacy. We are social beings. This Mm. goes against every bit of meeting natural needs. It is normal to ask for a hug when hurting. It is natural to kiss a partner when you feel intimate. These are natural responses Mm -hmm. that needs that get met. And I was told that those were impure, that the highest calling was to court someone, never touch them, definitely never kiss them before you're married. And that somehow, if I did that, that my marriage would be successful. I would have an amazing sex life. We would be forever connected and sort of the fairy tale that's the larger sociological narrative of a man will take care of you for the rest of your life also will play out. And (laughs) so this was incredibly influential in my growing up. And of course I got the purity ring, which signified my virginity. Why are we talking about something that doesn't even exist? Virginity is a made up concept. Like this is just a concept we've placed on something. It's not actually like a real thing. And I was given a ring to signify to everyone around me that I was still a virgin. I mean, this is just boundaryless. Like that is, no one needs that kind of intimate knowledge about what my sexual experiences are at 12. You know, nobody needs that. So the messages from that movement were unbelievably, they cannot be underestimated. The damages cannot be underestimated. And the reason I say this as a therapist now I literally cannot count both in my personal and professional life, how many marriages have been ripped apart because of purity culture. And now this goes really deep because it's not only maybe they didn't know how to communicate about sex. It's also because when things are pushed down, right? Sexuality, a need, a natural desire is pushed down. It comes out sideways. And what I mean by that, it comes out in harmful ways. Mm. 
And I see that played out over and over and over again in my clients, as well as in my friends who grew up within this movement of us trying to peel back layers of, oh, that's why it's hard to talk about sex, or that's why I feel shame when I kiss my partner. Okay. Like, this that's deep-seated trauma. If mm-hmm. I was taught from such a young age that when I'm married, I feel shame showing affection to who's supposed to be the safest person in my life. Um, right. So anyway, I don't think that the impact can be underestimated. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's so many great resources out now of people talking about this mm-hmm. um, and talking about the harm that it caused and people trying to correct it, trying to do better. And I'm so encouraged by that Yeah, and teaching yeah. a healthy sexuality. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's um, I've had some friends of mine that grew up in that culture that say the same thing that um, they have struggled uh, with sex, their sex life in their marriage, because there's such a deeply rooted, shameful, the, the, the urges that they feel they were taught at such a young age that they were bad and shameful and evil, you know, and you can only have them, you know, wait until after you're married, but you can't just switch your brain off. Like, you know, your brain like that, like if you for years are taught to withhold, that's not good. That part of you is not good. You can't suddenly become a sex kitten in the bedroom with your, with your husband now, because that's just not, you can't undo that kind of um, programming for lack of a better word. Right. And I think another thing that we can't um, overlook is how much connection there is between the lack of sex education, right? The, the narrative was essentially just don't have sex. That was the narrative, right? Right. Until you're married, don't have sex until you're married. Right. There was no discussion about what does consent look like? There was no discussion of that. Mm -hmm. That is inviting sexual assault to happen on a regular basis, especially when patriarchy has been taught within this culture. And it has been taught. And so men feel, well, I'm entitled to this. Mm -hmm. And women feel that they have no voice. They're never taught that they should have a voice, that consent is a real thing. And so literally it creates sexual assault in this scenario. Within marriages, I cannot count the number of clients I have had who have experienced sexual assault within marriage or whether they are in the bed, their body is saying, Hey, I really am tired. I don't want to have sex. But the messaging from the church was it is your obligation. So they override their own body's cues Mm -hmm. to engage in a sexual act or whatever that their body is saying no to that is sexual assault. When I override what my body is telling me, and engage in something every time that's a boundary crossing that I'm doing to myself. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I weep at the number of times that sexual assault comes up in regards to purity culture. Wow. Wow. That is, yeah. I, I can't imagine the stories that you hear coming across your desk or in your office it's really, really sad. And, um, I'm glad that, that it's being talked about. I'm glad that, um, even Joshua Harris is saying at that, he said in this thing, he asked his publisher to pull the book. They, they don't even sell it anymore. I mean, obviously you can get it. There's used copies, but, um, he acknowledges the damage 
that it did. And of course, like we said, he was only 18 at the time he wrote it. I mean, mm-hmm. you've got an 18 year old writing as an expert about sex and purity culture. I mean, it kind of, might, most people didn't realize he was that young when he wrote it. Real quick too, there's another term I want to ask that I actually am seeing a lot, and I'm not exactly sure that I know, decolonizing faith. What, can you uh, walk us through that for just a minute? Absolutely. Um, I want to first say I am (laughs) a white female, therefore decolonization is a blind spot for me, Mm. right? Because I'm white. And so um, I want to say that first and foremost, but it is my obligation, my responsibility to try my best to get out of my blind spots and be honest about this conversation. Um, I don't think we can talk about deconstruction and family of origin trauma when it comes to religious trauma, all of this without talking about decolonization. They're intimately connected. And there's several other topics that are also intimately connected, but that one in particular, the way that I think of decolonization is if our narratives, everything, everything from the psychological things I'm talking about all come from basically white men. There's a couple of things that I've talked about that haven't come from white men, but almost all of it has, which means I have not decolonized my therapeutic approach. Hmm. And so what I want you to see is that everything we are steeped in it so deeply our churches i mean people say it all the time like where is the most segregated time well it's sunday mornings right because we are so segregated and i want to really honor this for most people deconstruction is a white process This Mm -hmm. is not happening the same way in the black church. Is it happening? Probably so, but at the rate that it is happening within sort of mainline um, and evangelical white churches, no. Right. And I think it's because they have a, a, a totally different viewpoint that they're coming from in a lot of times. Um, But One way for me that I think about decolonization is the internal process, because we've talked about how important it is for me that um, racism and decolonization is found in the body. And what I mean by that is whenever we encounter someone, for instance, me as a white person, if I encounter someone, a person of color, if I pay attention to my body, my body might send me a signal of unsafety. And this is an internal process that goes on so quickly that if you're not paying attention, you wouldn't even know it was there. Wow. And there is someone who's written a a magnificent book about this, but it's essentially, he talks about white body supremacy and he talks about racism is rooted in the body, in white bodies, racism exists. And you must notice this process go on because it's somatic first. And then you start having thoughts about it. And you must rid yourself systematically of this. And he gives you practices on how to do this. And we'll put those in the resource notes because I want people to have that resource. It's such an amazing book. Okay. Um, But when I think of decolonization, I think of this process, which is recognizing where is it that all the power structures are white and what would it look like to elevate, let's say, a black queer woman instead Mm. Um, there's a woman who's written an amazing book that I highly recommend to people, um, called pleasure activism, black queer woman, like talking about how do we reclaim pleasure as women? Oh Um, wow! 
and highly recommend it because of the perspective she comes from. She comes from an enormous amount of wisdom because she's outside of the power structure. She actually sees it better because she's outside of it. And so to me, part of this process is who am I reading? What voices am I listening to? Um, who am I believing in that process? Who do I follow on social media? Mm-hmm. And decolonizing that, meaning I elevate people on the outskirts, people of color, queer people, um, disabled people, anyone marginalized, that I elevate their voice because actually I probably haven't heard it very much. Wow. So that's what, yeah, that makes so much sense. It's like getting away from the singular white male voice and opening up and hearing what the marginalized are saying about their faith and their faith journeys. And wow, that makes so much sense. I kind of thought that's what it was, but I I just saw um, somebody talking about it today uh, on Instagram and using that term. And I was like, I'm going to ask Jessica about that just to kind of clarify that, but that makes so much sense because yeah, uh, the white voice, the white male voice, I mean, you know, we haven't even gotten into the, uh, how patriarchy affects, uh, so many women and how so many women are dealing with the spiritual trauma and abuse from growing up in a church that was, um, patriarchy. I guess the, the softer word is complementary. <laughs> it's the same thing, right? <laughs> it's the same thing. Yeah. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. Have you read uh, The Making of Biblical Womanhood by Beth Allison I Barr? I just started it and um, it's already just like rocking my world. Yeah. You might find that um, interesting, but um, you let, I know we we're running out of time here, but let's just, let's just touch on that just a minute. Just like the effects of patriarchy in the church. I mean, I'm sure you're seeing a lot of that in your, with your patients as well. Oh my goodness. Um, I think that's another one of these, as we just talked about decolonization, I feel like internalized misogyny within women is rampant, that Mm -hmm. that is a lifelong process, just as it is to rid yourself of racism. It is a lifelong process to rid yourself of internalized misogyny. Actually, it's funny that we're talking about this because uh, Glennon Doyle just did a podcast on the subject of gender. And in this conversation, they were talking about internalized misogyny. It's completely impossible to talk about gender without talking about internalized misogyny. And so um, highly recommend people listening to that podcast. Essentially, when I think about it in a religious context, whenever there is from a deity granted that the narrative is, I made man first woman is evil because she is the one who caused sin to come into the world and out of man right woman was made out of out of adam's rib came woman right it's mm-hmm. not woman birthing man which is actually like yeah what we understand in our experience right. no from man's like rib comes woman i mean it's just so rampant throughout the bible it's it's I couldn't even name it all. Um, And to peel back those layers of what does that mean about what I think about myself and my own voice and the agency I have in my life, the role that I feel like I need to play, whether it's in my marriage, whether it's with my kids, whether it's in the workplace or not in the workplace, as John Piper says. (laughs) Um, uh, So 
it's so, so, so integral to the deconstruction process and also healing trauma, right? Because for women to feel fully embodied, and that's what I really want for people is to feel completely calm and embodied, meaning like I have agency. I have, I feel full of myself Mm. and I'm like borrow Glennon's tagline, which says we don't need women who are emptying themselves. We need women who are full of themselves. Oh, wow. Completely full of themselves. And I totally agree with that because actually the more, you know, yourself, the better off you're going to be, the better off you're going to make better, better decisions that the more that you, um, recognize the narratives that have been shouting at you in patriarchy, of whether it is like not to ask for too much for a salary in your workplace or whether it is, oh, I feel like I've got to have the meal ready when he comes home. Why am I, why am I doing that? Why, why am I doing that? Or whether it is noticing on paperwork where um, like taxes, for instance, it says the taxpayer and the spouse and it says wife. Um, notice what? What? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we're only like what 40 years since women didn't have bank accounts, you right. know, I mean, like recognizing all of the narratives that have been at play that have taught you to perform in certain ways that actually do not serve you and serve men mm-hmm. um, and peeling those layers back and then responding in a different way. And it's endless, truly. I mean, I have experiences all the time where I realized I was doing that because of an unconscious narrative that I was given about who I should be as a woman, mm. whether it is, I'm not wearing makeup today. And I did that intentionally. Aww. I do not want to think that the narrative that I am not pretty unless I paint my face, like my face is unacceptable, but a man's face on the other hand, now that's totally acceptable. He can just wake up and, and oh go to work. Gosh. Yes. He's that message. Yes. But the things we live by shape us, these unconscious narratives shape us and shape our behavior and shape the way we sh- show up in the world. Mm-hmm. And so the more I can recognize these misogynistic tendencies I even have, the better off I am to change them. And sadly, a lot of those are planted from the church. Unfortunately so. And I think you're right. You know, like complementarianism is just a way essentially to say, women, you are to submit and man has power. Like it is a power play. It is an ultimate power play. And it's dressed up in a deity giving man that power. And so, you know, it's, um, it's deeply sad, honestly, it's a grief process to realize all the ways, whether big or small, that power has been taken away because of this terrible message that I don't think was ever intended from a deity for there to be some sort of hierarchy in people. I don't think that was ever intended. No, I, I agree. Um, some of the books and some of the studies and some of the uh, spiritual leaders that I have followed and learned from recently have pointed out how there have been uh, incorrect interpretations and translations of biblical passages that have benefited 
the white male leader, even, even the word submit, I was reading the rock, the road and the rabbi by Kathy Lee Gifford earlier. And she was breaking down, uh, some words like original of the Greek and the Hebrew words in the Bible and what they meant. And the word, the original word of submit means to partner with, Mm. and that has been changed now to mean something completely different. It means that you give uh, your power away to them. That's not what the original word was, but that's how it's been um, changed through the years, you know, and used ag- against us as women, you know, to kind of Absolutely. control us. Right. Absolutely. And I think when we look at Jesus, it could mm. not be a clear opposite message, right? I know. In every way he went against his own culture's misogyny and elevated women. They financed Jesus. They believed in him so much. So recognizing that even if the writers had internalized misogyny, that Jesus somehow embodied something very radical, unbelievably radical for his time. And even for now, honestly, you know, to be around prostitutes, et cetera, sex workers, like that is radical. Um, you don't hear pastors saying, well, this weekend I was hanging out with some sex workers. Like you don't hear that. So to me, all the more, there's this recognition of how important that work is. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, um, last season we had, uh, Reverend Sherry Cothran on, and she just wrote a book called the wild and holy women of the Bible. And it's so good because it brings to light all these women in the Bible that have been overlooked. Like, oh, let's not talk about the fact that there were all these women helping Paul and like breaking it down. And that's what I'm just getting into with the making of biblical womanhood where Beth Allison Barr is breaking down um, how a lot of Paul's words have been misconstrued. Uh, People are like, I don't like Paul. He tells women to be quiet. Well, not necessarily if you like really go down and start studying it and she's done her homework man it is a fascinating read i encourage anyone to pick up that book i'm not even done with it and i'm like oh, i've got to find someone to talk to about this when it's <laughs> over but um I, our time is up we've talked about so many things first of all i i'm just in awe i know this work that you do has got to be difficult like and draining for you. And I thank you. I'm so in awe on people like you that say, I'm going to dive into this and work through these really difficult issues with people and help them. So the good news is the good news here is that there is help out there. Like if you're suffering from any kind of trauma, but we're talking about spiritual trauma today, or even family of origin trauma, people like Jessica are out there that can help you um, work through things. And, um, are there, uh, we will list in the show notes, some other resources that you recommend if you're out there going through this right now, but maybe are there just a couple, uh, things you want to bring up here before we end our time? Yeah. Um, you know, I think for people to have, um, well, I want to first say I am not, uh, perfect. (laughs) And I say that because, 
these are books that influenced me, but if you read it and you feel like you're not connecting with it, like put it down. But for, for me, books that have shifted the way that I think about things and things that I've mentioned already were pleasure activism. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is written by Adrian Marie Brown. There's a great book out there called, you are your own a reckoning with religious trauma of evangelical Christianity by Jamie Lee Finch. Highly recommend that book. I feel like for people who grew up in evangelicalism, this can be really, really helpful for them validating of their experience. Um, I touched on um, my grandmother's hands, radicalized trauma and the pathway to mending our hearts and bodies. And that's by Resva Manakim. And the other one that I really love to mention, and I've mentioned Glennon so many times, I can't help it, um, is Untamed. Um, I feel like that book is really helpful for women um, in seeing the ways that they have not been full of themselves Mm. and reclaiming those. And of course you can't round out as a therapist, I can't round out anything without Brene Brown um, (laughs) of Braving the Wilderness because (sighs) truly braving the wilderness is the deconstruction process. You are standing and braving the wilderness. When I read that book, it was, it changed my world. It was like, I was kind of just going into it and I read that book and I, I've literally wanted to like, I have to find this woman and hug her. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, her, her work is, is huge. And honestly, any of her books are, are awesome. And then, um, I want to mention this because it's one that's mentioned so often, but I want to sort of put a caveat with it, which is the body keeps the score. And this is by Bessel van der Kolk. And this is about trauma only. So it's not religious trauma. It's just trauma only. However, I highly recommend people getting this from the library. And the reason I say this is because he has been found to be, um, a perpetrator of sexual assault. Um, even though he wrote all, he's, he's essentially the, the one who wrote the Bible on trauma. Um, But it has come out since that book that he has perpetrated sexual harassment to the people that worked under him. And so I don't want him to get (laughs) money from this book, but it is monumental and a game changer in terms of understanding trauma. That is great advice. Um, You know, I was, I was in a group, uh, a deconstruction group that we were talking about, um, Ravi Zacharias and when everything came out about him and there were women in that group that were saying, you know, they were shaped by a lot of his books and his work. And they were like, what are we supposed to do with these books now? Like, do we throw them out? You know? And somebody said, well, what are we supposed to do with Psalms? I mean, David had somebody killed so he could sleep with his wife. You know I mean? It's like, I guess we can't necessarily throw out there, you know, there can still be some good stuff, but I like what you're saying. It's like, just check it out of the library. Like don't, <laughs> don't buy it. Don't. Yeah. That's a, that's a kind of a, a good way to still find the information and not contribute to the problem. Maybe. Yes. Oh, that's great. Um, well, uh, is there anything else you'd like to just leave us with today? I'm going to definitely put your information. Like I said, I'm going to list all these books, everyone. You'll be able to find these books in the show notes. You'll be able to find out how to contact Jessica and um, follow her and get in touch with her, even make an appointment with her if you need her. 
she's there and uh, I highly recommend her. She's great. Thank you so much for having me on. I had a wonderful Thank you time for coming. I'm so glad you. you came. You're a doll. I'm so glad that you're in my life. I appreciate you so much. Absolutely. Well, we'll talk soon. Have a great day. And uh, thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye girl. Well, I know that was a heavy conversation, but it's my hope that if any of you are out there struggling with any kind of adverse religious experience, trauma or abuse right now, that you will reach out to Jessica or me or someone you trust to help you work through it all. I think the main thing is to remember that you aren't crazy. Spiritual gaslighting is common and can make you feel that way sometimes, but what you're going through is real and it deserves your attention right now so that you can come out of it as a healthier being spiritually and emotionally. And there is another side. So hang in there. Okay. Um, again, thanks to my guest, Jessica Hine. And thanks to all of you for listening each week. If you are finding us helpful, please take a moment to rate and review us on your podcast platform, whichever iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, whatever you're listening. It will help us so much in keeping these conversations going. So until next week, y'all be safe and be well. And I'll meet you back here for another episode of the God and My Girlfriends podcast. Bye. Again.